All right, so far in our uh, sermon series, we've covered some, some important concepts. Uh, we've talked about how holiness is actually a gift of grace, that the, the root word of, of holy means to be set apart, both in the Old and New Testament, and God, by his grace, sets us apart to himself and for his love uh, when we believe in Jesus, right? Holiness is a gift. That means it's not about achievement, it's about attachment. It's about relationship, not performance. And as we saw last week, this is both a gift and a challenge because we are called in receiving that love to grow in that love, right? And not generically or generally, right? It's not good enough to love humanity. It is not good enough to love the right causes. It is not good enough to love the right ideas. We need to love people, actual, specific, personal people, right? We have to love our neighbor, right? The word neighbor literally means near ones. Who's your neighbor? Look around. You need to love the people around you, who live around you, who work around you, who are in community around you. You need to love specific, difficult, growing, frustrating, wonderful people. That's the way it works. We're made holy when we receive grace. And we grow holy as we learn to grow in the generosity of love. Love is the goal. And love is the power that gets us there. Now, I've talked a lot about the essence of love, the purpose of love, the movement of love. I want to talk this morning a little bit about how we grow um, in the experience of holiness, right? Because I know many have at points and and quietly, uh, hey, Steve, man, come on, doesn't holiness have a moral component, right? Doesn't doesn't holiness express itself in moral ways? Surely we can't be holy and act like Hitler. Um, Yeah, morality isn't the measure of holiness, right? But doesn't holiness work its way out in our morality? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Moral behavior is an expression of our love for God and our love for others. Love is the essence of the law, and when we break God's moral codes, we are not acting in love for God, and we are not acting in love for others, right? If I lie, I misrepresent God. I'm imaging God, but I'm not actually representing God. I am deceiving others. That is not love. It is a violation of love. Here's the challenge. If moral change isn't the result, so here's here's the, like, and this is the rubber meets the road, right? Part of the reason we struggle with all of these moral questions is that it is so, so difficult to change our moral fabric. It's really, really hard um, to, you know, it's, it's one thing to shuffle our behaviors. It's another thing to get to the root of it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like not just deal with the lie that I speak, but deal with the, the fear that causes me to lie, the insecurity, the need for... Um, image management, right? The, 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 the thing that keeps me from being humble and vulnerable, is, you know, those sorts of things. Here's the challenge. If moral change isn't the result of white-knuckle Christianity, if moral change isn't the result of a, a philosophy of do better, try harder, how do we change? 
How do we grow in our experience of holiness? The answer is we have to engage the power of love. Love is the goal and love is the power. If we want to change personally, we need to grow in our experience of love collectively. So let's take a look at John 16. This morning, John 16, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 14. I'm going to take some key principles out of some things Jesus says, and and we're going to be working with those principles this morning. So John 16, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chair around you. In our Bibles, uh, we're going over to page 902, page 902, John 16, and... uh, We'll go ahead and start in verse 5 and just read through 14. But now I'm going to him. This, okay, so let me just give you the context. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. This is the last night. He's about to be betrayed. He's going to be handed over, crucified. He's been telling his disciples all along, I'm going to be betrayed. He's literally told them at this point, I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. They didn't understand any of it. Like, they thought it was metaphorical or they thought he was just being Jesus because um, Jesus said all kinds of crazy stuff. We don't know, Um, but he has finally driven home to them this point that he is leaving, okay? And, And so he is in this part comforting them with these words, verse five. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so Jesus said a lot of surprising things over the course of his ministry and on this, this night. This is not the least of them. Um, he is comforting his disciples, and his line of reasoning is this. Like, y'all know I'm leaving, right? You're, you're starting to get that. You're feeling distressed. You're a little, little anxious. Um, but listen, y'all, listen. It's actually better for you if I go. Like, it's actually good news to you that I'm leaving because after I leave, I will send the helper. And when he comes, he will do a profound work, both in the world and in you. Have you ever, have you ever thought, man, life would just be a whole lot easier if Jesus was here? You know what I'm saying? Like, like life would be just so much easier if, if like, I could ask you some questions. You could just give me some life advice. I could spend some time with you, right? Life on life stuff, and, and I could watch you, and I could be with you. Uh, there are times I don't know which way to go. I don't know what to do. It'd be a whole lot easier, Jesus, if you were just here telling me which way to go. There are times, Jesus, I just need a God-sized bear hug. 
be a whole lot easier if you were just here to give it to me. You know, like, like life would just be easier if Jesus was here. But Jesus said that we are actually better off without him. With him bodily, he's, he's not spiritually gone, but bodily, right? He is bodily not present with us. He, 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 we're better off with him gone than we would be otherwise because um, when he left, it, it triggered him sending the Spirit. Now, it wasn't that the Spirit couldn't be sent while he was here. The Spirit was present when Jesus was here, right? The Spirit and Jesus showed up in the same places. It wasn't like Jesus had to go change clothes and he suddenly showed back up as the Spirit, right? Um, the Spirit and Jesus are, are two persons of the Trinity, right? Three who's, one what. Um, they can be in the same place at the same time, right? Um, it, it wasn't that. It, it was that when, when Jesus died and was buried and he rose again, um, and then ascended into heaven, it triggered the next chapter of the story of redemption and restoration, right? The progressive story of God's redemptive work. And, and during this stage of the redemptive story, he said, the next stage, man, you don't get it. It's going to be better. It's going to be better because when I leave and when I die and when I rise again and the Spirit comes... He's going to indwell you. The helper will be with you always. Now, let's talk a little bit about the helper. What does this mean, the helper? Um, I, I became a believer in a really odd situation. Um, I became a believer at a Bible college, which I guess that's not that odd, becoming a believer at a Bible college. What's odd is that I was a 17-year-old skater punk from California who was an unbeliever, and I ended up at a conservative Bible college in Dubuque, Iowa, but, but I did, and, uh, and I became a believer there, and um, I didn't know anything about the Bible. I didn't know anything about Christianity. Well, I knew some things about Christianity, most of the things unpleasant, but I, I knew some things, and I had to learn a lot more. There was a group on campus that I found out about. They were kind of a secretive group, and, uh, and, and I was attracted to them because uh, they, they did these hidden acts of service. They did these hidden acts of kindness, and, and that appealed to me. I was like, that's really, really cool. And, uh, and so it was a group that didn't meet, um, and, and it didn't have a centralized organization. It was just a group of people that were all gathering around a single idea and nobody even shared what they were doing with each other. It was all in secret. It was all um, done between you and God and somebody else who didn't even know it was happening, right? It was, it was a beautiful thing. I remember there was an older guy at the college that I fell in love with. He was a, a 59-year-old freshman, um, and uh, he was an incredible guy. Um, and, uh, and I just loved him, and I wanted to bless him, and, and I heard him one time complaining about his shoes, and and, uh, and so, like, I, this was before internet. Like, I listened, I watched, I did some sleuthing, I found out what kind of shoes he liked, I found out what size he wore. I don't even know how I found them, but I bought them. And, like, I got to watch when he came to the bank of mailboxes, you know, and, and there was a package for him, and he opened it up, and, and there were his shoes, and he's like, you know, like, there was no note, and there was no, and it was, it, it just, like, like, wow, like, so encouraging. Well, here's the thing. The name of that group was the Paracletes. Um, 
which I didn't, like, whatever. Like, I heard about it from some guy who was a student athlete, and so I thought they were just a bunch of student athletes, and they decided to name their group after a pair of cleats. Um, it didn't make sense to me. I didn't own cleats. I owned a skateboard, but I didn't really care because I liked what the group was about, and it wasn't until I was one morning studying New Testament Greek that I found out that, uh, that parakaleo is a Greek word um, that's, that means helper, encourager. Literally, it means somebody who comes along beside, to aid, to encourage, to help, to strengthen. Um, the Greek word that's used here, paraclete, is a word that is used to describe the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus isn't talking about any random helper here. Uh, the, the, the ESV makes that clear when it capitalizes the helper, right? This is a name for the Holy Spirit. Um, and Jesus is saying, look, it's better if I leave because when I do, the paraclete will come, the helper, the encourager, and he will do his work in you even as he does his work through you. He is the gift of holiness. When, when you believe in Jesus and receive the gift of grace and God declares you holy, the Holy Spirit is the gift of holiness. He is the one who sets you apart for God by actually coming in and dwelling you, right? You are made holy by the presence of the Holy Spirit. He indwells you. This is your reality. This is your position before God. This is who he has declared you to be and who he treats you as. But then he goes to work in us to change us so that we can become more in practice what we are in position, so that we can become more in our daily lives what we already are in our spiritual lives, holy. So this initial indwelling, is what the New Testament calls being sealed in the Spirit. Sometimes it's called being baptized in the Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 1.13 says this, In Him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed. So when you received the good news of Jesus and believed in, in God, every single believer is baptized in the Holy Spirit. It's not some secondary blessing for an elite few. Every single one of us is sealed. And that word sealed uh, had a lot of meaning in the ancient world because when, when a letter was being sent, um, they, would, they would roll it up, the parchment. Don't think about letters like we have today, but they would roll up the parchment and they would take wax and they would, they would drop it on there to seal it. And then they would take the signet ring of the person sending it and press it in the wax. And nobody who had less authority then the person who sealed it could break it. Does that make sense? Like that seal was its protection because if you broke that seal and you weren't authorized to, you didn't have the authority to, the full weight of, of the authority of the one who sealed it would come down on you. You are sealed by the Holy Spirit. You are absolutely secure. Nobody can break that seal. Not even you. It is the gift of holiness. You are sealed in the Spirit. You are set apart by God, for God, to experience His love. Now, 
he indwells you. He indwells you, which means you actually become the temple of God. He takes up residence in you, right? You think about the Old Testament, that, that description of the Old Testament temple, right? That crazy building that had carvings of pomegranates and, and, and gold everywhere, and it was huge and impressive and imposing and so holy, right? You think about that building, that's you. You are the temple of God. The gold, the pomegranates, the carefully worked woodwork, it was nothing compared to you. It was a foreshadowing. You aren't an impressive building. You were created in the image of God. You bear the Imago Dei. And not only were you created in the image of God, believer in Christ, you are now indwelled by the Spirit of God. The image of God is now enlivened by the presence of God. You are the living temple of God. And that's why it does indeed matter what you do with your body. Now, in the ancient world, the first century when Jesus lived and Paul wrote, um, it was a very common philosophy to view human hungers as neither moral nor immoral. So if you're physically hungry, you ate. If you were sexually hungry, you went to the prostitute. Um, if you were angry and you had the authority, you could take that anger out on anybody who had lesser authority than you. I mean, it was just, if there was a hunger, the whole purpose of having power was to exercise it. The whole purpose of hunger was to have it fulfilled. Paul, writing into this context, says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? What you do with your body matters. This was a radical idea in the first century. Like, like this was a countercultural idea in the first century. And honestly, it's just as radical today. Right? We are, when, when you look at the American culture on the spectrum of collective to individualistic, we are radically individualistic. Right? We, we, are, we, we treasure our autonomy, our privacy, our separateness, our individuality. Uh, we, we, we totally mistrust anything. Like any, any mention of collective guilt, man, it'll trigger people. They'll get all freaked out. How can I be guilty? Like the Bible says that the sins of the father are passed on to the sins to the, to the son. And, and people that are in more collective societies are like, yeah, absolutely, of course, that's true. People in individualistic societies are like, how can I be responsible for the behavior of others? There's no way I can have any kind of responsibility for anybody but myself. I am extremely autonomous, right? We love autonomy. And that autonomy plays its way out even in how we view ourselves, right? This is my body. I get to do what I want with my body. 
Nobody gets to tell me what to do with my body. You don't get to control me. No, I don't. And honestly, I don't want to. <laughs> I've had a hard time, hard enough time controlling myself. Um, I have no desire to control you. But listen, God created you. God designed you. And God designed you with a purpose to flourish in his love, to walk in the beauty of his gifts, that you might love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, and you might love your neighbor as you love yourself. Listen, when we abuse God's gifts, we abuse our relationship with God, right? When, when, when we use alcohol as a substitute, um, for true and genuine rest. That matters. That matters because it's not just something we're doing with our body. It is something we are saying about and to God. When, when we use sex as a substitute for real intimacy, human connection, and significance, it is not simply something we're doing in our privacy or alone or with some other consenting adult. It is something we are doing to the image of God. It is something we are saying about the character and nature of God when we use food as a substitute for the true comfort of community. We're acting like our bodies are our own. And that we're, in the end, hopelessly enslaved to our hungers, just like the ancient philosophers would teach. If I'm hungry, I have to eat. And if I don't eat, what meaning has life? So clearly, if I have this desire, the whole purpose of having the desire is to have that desire fulfilled. And if I can't have that desire fulfilled, then therefore, um, I, I can't be fulfilled in life, right? Uh, when in reality, we have disordered desires, desires that take us to good things for the wrong purpose, that take good things and twist them into bad things because we're actually trying to use those things to substitute for God. We're looking to those things to do for us what only God can do, to be for us what only God can be. That is the essence of sin. And in the end, it doesn't free us when we satisfy those desires. It enslaves us to those desires. Your body is God's temple. And when you willingly sin, you defile the temple and you grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, you don't lose your holiness. If you're a believer in Christ, um, it is a gift of grace that sets you apart. It is a gift of grace that, that makes you holy, but you will lose your experience of your holiness. You will lose the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the gentleness and the goodness and the faithfulness and the self-control that are the expression of the presence of the Spirit because you will lose your intimate connection with the love of the Spirit. So what, do we, what happens when we sin, when we willingly sin, when we, when we indulge in, in these activities? Well, the Spirit goes to work cleaning the temple. He goes to work convicting us, calling us to grow and to change, not to punish us, but to free us into the fruit that comes from his presence. Now, most Christians get this. 
Most Christians, like what I've taught so far, like most Christians are like, I've heard this before and this is familiar territory, that I'm not supposed to sin and when I do, the Spirit convicts me and calls me to change and He'll do the work in me and, 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 and that's, it's all true, it's all true. Um, the real issue, I think for most of us, isn't that we don't know it, it's that we don't know how to do it. Like we get that we're supposed to morally change, the question is how do we morally change? I know I'm supposed to stop sinning in these ways. The real question is, how do I stop sinning in these ways? We get stuck in the ruts of our sin and we don't know how to get unstuck. Sexual sin, unforgiveness, jealousy, fear. So here's the secret, y'all. If you want to become more holy, you can't do it on your own. If you want to grow more holy, if you want the temple of your body to be purified, you need to find your place in the greater temple of God's people. Listen, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but you aren't the whole temple. <laughs> you're just not I remember in the early days of I think it was the internet I don't even know somehow we had moved to the Midwest and we were going back to California to visit family we ended up staying at a, at a hotel and, and we picked this hotel because it was central and it was nice and, and I think we got a good deal on it like a Priceline type thing and, and I remember taking the kids to the pool and it was like this really nice kidney shaped pool and it was like going to be awesome right because I had all three kids and who doesn't love throwing kids into water and um and then I see this path and it goes down to another pool and I'm like, is that ours too? Like, that, is that a separate hotel? Is that, I think it's ours too. So I'm like, come on kids, right? So we all just pick up our towels and we go trotting down to this other pool and it's a rectangle and it's shallower. And then while we're there, we look over and we're like, there's another one with a slide. And then there were like 10 pools. And every time you turned around, there was a, there was a whole new discovery of whole, this, this whole new joyful thing. Listen, y'all, that is very much the way this works, your body is the temple of the Spirit, and the Spirit indwells you, and that is wonderful and comforting and empowering and delightful, but it isn't the whole temple. So in Corinth, um, we read 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul admonished them, right, about <laughs> don't just run down to the, to the temple and, and pay for prostitutes. It's not good. That's not holy. That's not what God wants you to do, right? Um, they weren't just getting morally sideways. They were getting relationally sideways, right? In, in Corinth, they had all the problems. I love Corinth because they're like, like if there's hope for Corinth, there's hope for anybody. But, but in, in Corinth, one of the problems they had was they kept getting all huffy with each other. Like they just couldn't stop judging each other. They were so divisive right? They, they were like, we're right, you're wrong, right? To the point where in, in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's like, look, I, I know there are factions among you. There are those who are say, like, I am of Paul, who is Paul. I am of Apollos, who is another teacher. I, and some of you are like super spiritual. I'm not of Paul or Apollos. I'm of Christ, Ooh, right? And, and, and you create these us-them paradigms where, where we're the guys who have it right and you're the guys who have it wrong. Now, it wasn't really about Paul and Apollos and Christ. 
In the very next chapter, Paul says, I applied these things to us figuratively. You didn't actually have groups in Corinth dividing around these teachers. What you had were groups in Corinth who were creating tribes around issues outside of the gospel. Secondary issues that Paul didn't want to directly mention because it would simply inflame the partisan divisiveness that was already in the church. And so instead, he's like, I'm going to figuratively apply it to us so that I don't like mistakenly trigger some of y'all and and you don't hear anything else I said because your pet issue somehow seems like it's not important to me. But that's what's going on, right? They're gathering around these issues that they think are of vital importance. And because it's so important, I have the right to judge you. I have the right to despise you. I have the right to fear you. I have the right to divide from you. And subtly, what I'm saying is I'm holy and you're not. We're the ones who got it right. You're the ones who are getting it wrong. They were getting so self-righteous and angry that they were, in the name of God, dividing the church of God. And this is what Paul has to say to them. Take a look at this, 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. All right, so there's an important change here that we need to note that doesn't become clear in the English language. In the English language, we only have one word for you. It's you, right? And, and there's a limitation to that, right? That creates a lot of confusion, which is why some people in the Northeast say that really, really weird and horrible thing, use. Don't ever say use, right? But use, and sometimes they make it even plural, plural, like use guys, right? You can just say, hey guys, that's, that's a plural that, that is a little bit clearer. The one that, of course, is close to my heart, the one that I love is y'all, right? Y'all makes it clear. When I, when I say, hey, you, You don't know whether I'm talking to a you or you, right? But if I say, hey, y'all, you know, right? And if I really want to be clear, I say, hey, all y'all, right? Hey, all y'all, you need to pay attention, right? Because then you know I'm talking about every individual in the broader group. Hey, all y'all, that's what Paul is saying. This is a plural you. Hey, do you not know that all y'all, are God's temple. Not each one of you individually, but all of you collectively. You, y'all, are the temple. Your bodies are the temples individually, but now you are part of a bigger body, the body of Christ. Now, obviously, there's an application here which isn't the primary point of the sermon, but it is incredibly, incredibly important that we don't just fall in line with the broader culture that is partisan and divisive and self-righteous and I am of the elephant and I am of the donkey and oh man, we're the super righteous ones. We're of the Statue of Liberty, which is the symbol of the libertarians, right? Um, you know, and pretty soon we're creating these little partisan groups where we feel self-righteously right and dividing from others. 
Um, Y'all need to listen, man. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. There's a lot of stuff going on in the name of God that is unholy. But that's not the point of this sermon. Um, The point of this sermon is this. When I'm with you, believer in Christ, I'm not just with you. The Holy Spirit in me is with the Holy Spirit in you. Now, they're not two separate Holy Spirits. Okay, get that? Let's be clear here, right? You don't have one, your, your own little personal Holy Spirit, and I got my own personal Holy Spirit. There is one Spirit. And when that Spirit in me is with that Spirit in you, there is a mystical and unseen but real connection between us. The Spirit of God inhabits this space. When we gather as the body of Christ, he's not just hovering over us in some mystical sense. He is present with us. He's in me. He's in you. And when we come together, we are the temple of the living God. This isn't just an interesting piece of theological trivia. It's essential to understanding how we grow in holiness. We were each called to obey individually, right? That's true. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and I am called to obey God's commands. I am called to to be like Christ, right? But we're called to grow in community. And that's a really important piece to catch. I'm called to obey individually, but I am called to grow in community. Let me remind you of a familiar passage that we've talked quite a bit about. This is Galatians 5, 16 and verse 22. Okay, let me just read it again. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What's the subject of that sentence? But I say, walk. All right, English nerd time. That's the implied you. Okay, you walk. Now, you doesn't show up in the English language in the English sentence because the way our language works, when you is the implied subject, it just becomes a command, right? What you don't see is that walk is plural. This is not an individual command for you to individually walk in the Spirit. This is a community command. Y'all walk in the Spirit. Not just you in your individual, private, isolated life, but you with the broader community of the church. Walk in the Spirit, and when you do, you will not satisfy the lusts of the flesh, but you will grow in the fruit of the Spirit. When you, as a community, walk in the Spirit together, you as a community will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, but will manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Listen, y'all, I've said this a thousand times, I'll say it a thousand times more, and and I'm, you need the church. 
You cannot grow in Christ outside of the body of Christ. You cannot grow in holiness through isolated efforts of personal self-improvement. You need the church. There is no holiness outside of relationship. Because holiness is fundamentally relational. You need the church. You need other believers to become fruitful in the Spirit. Let me show you one more verse to drive this home. Ephesians 5, 18 says this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We as Western individualists, again, read this in terms of, I should not go personally get drunk with wine. I instead, personally, should be filled with the Spirit. But Paul is not talking about the solo alcoholic here. He's thinking about drunken parties. He is talking about, it's plural, he's not talking about the solo guy in the dark corner, he is talking about debauchery. Debauchery is a group activity, it is wasteful and reckless behavior, and the key is on wasteful. Why? Because it wastes joy. It wastes human connection. Instead of coming together and enjoying increased shared human intimacy, you have the cheap imitation of drunken revelry. Instead of actually sharing genuine joy of intimacy, vulnerability, and knowing and being known, you have the false experience of an emotional high that is produced by an artificial substance that leaves you more isolated than when you began. It is essentially wasteful. It is debauchery. Instead, Paul says, be filled with the Spirit. But Steve, aren't we filled with the Spirit when we have our private time with God? It may be. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Let me read to you the rest of the paragraph. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul is not talking about you and your isolated, private, spiritual experience. You do not grow in holiness alone. You need the body of Christ. There is nothing in this context about a private, solo spirituality. To be filled with the Spirit... We must gather in the temple where the Spirit abides. Not just the individual temple of your body, but the collective temple of God's people. You are sealed with the Spirit when you believe. That is an individual experience. And it makes your body, your individual body, a temple. But you are filled with the Spirit when you come together with other believers. 
to love God and worship, to encourage and be encouraged, to know and be known, to love and be loved. You grow in your experience of grace by experiencing that grace with the people of grace. You grow in your holiness as you experience love. If you want to grow, if you want to change, you need the church. If we want to change personally, we must gather collectively and grow in our experience of the Spirit together, singing, worshiping, sharing gratitude, and serving. And it needs to be more than just this space on Sunday morning. This space is important. This is an important time for the church. It's an important experience for the church. But life change happens best in small groups. Because you can show up in this space and never be vulnerable. You can show up in this space and no one will know you. And you don't have to know anyone else. You can do the fellowship handshake thing. Hey, hey, buddy. Hey, good to see you. You can put on your Sunday best and never actually move into the genuine life-on-life experiences necessary to experience the power of the Spirit at work in the temple of God. That's why community groups are so important to our model. That's why community groups are essential to who Trailhead is and our vision for how we grow in Christ. It's why we're putting so much energy right now into rebooting our community groups and investing in our leaders and why at the end of this series, we're gonna be inviting once again, every single one of you to commit to that experience so that we can grow and change. All right, let me close this in a word of prayer and uh, I'm gonna share communion. We'll sing some more. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are the God who is at the center of our community. That as we gather to be the temple, our experience isn't dependent on us or what we bring or, or on somebody else and what they bring. We're dependent on what you bring. What you bring in me and what you bring in them. And when we get together, simply learning to love each other in spite of our differences, to see one another in spite of our conflicting values, to value one another in spite of our, our differences. Lord, that's how we grow. So we thank you, Spirit, that you have poured your love out in us. Help us, Lord. This is such a difficult concept for us as Westerners to get. We are so isolated, individualistic, and autonomous. We so value our privacy and our, our, our right to private space and private life. And Lord, we... I think at times our need 
autonomy becomes our prison of isolation. We're dying of loneliness. We're dying in need of love. We're dying because we haven't learned the maturity of love and holiness. Spirit, we awaken within us a desire to love and be loved, to know and be known. The courage to be genuinely vulnerable and honest, knowing that we're secure in our holiness, but we need that honesty to grow in our experience of it. Increase our value, Lord, for one another. Help us, Lord, to love one another, not simply because we're supposed to, but because we need to. Meet us where we are and help us to grow into what we will be. And all of God's people said,